1: to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Tonight on 360, breaking news on two fronts, special counsel Jack Smith asking the Supreme Court to fast track a decision on whether the former president should even face trial for January 6th, and the Supreme Court has already responded. Also in the documents case, new revelations about what the former president and his associates have been saying to a former employee and potential witness. And later, today's life-changing decision by the Texas woman caught between the state's strict abortion laws and a pregnancy almost certain to end in the death of her child. That, the court ruling on it just moments ago. We begin tonight with the breaking news, just hours after special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to take up the question of whether the former president is immune from prosecution in the election subversion case case. The court responded, though it's only the court's initial move, it is also the speedy first step toward a potentially historic decision with echoes of another landmark case involving a president and the law nearly 50 years ago, the height of the Watergate scandal. Jack Smith cited that case prominently in his filing today. More from our CNN chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. So what exactly is the Supreme Court right now agreed to?
3: Well, today, the special counsel asked them to take up two constitutional questions in the hope that those could be resolved and they could move ahead with their election subversion case against Trump as scheduled in March. And tonight, the Supreme Court said, we'll get back to you soon. Now, they're not saying that they're going to take up these questions. They're saying, though, that their response will be prompt. And that's somewhat of a win for the special counsel because timing is everything here. Former President Trump is litigating uh, these legitimate questions that have never been answered before. The first is whether he is immune from prosecution. The second is whether he is protected from double jeopardy because he was impeached, though not convicted on similar charges. Well, it is his right to litigate these questions. This takes time. It could take months, potentially even over a year, for this question to go from the district court, where he has lost on the immunity question, So the appeals court to potentially the full appeals court to the Supreme Court. So here the special counsel is saying, look, it is of public importance that we skip that intermediary step and just go straight to the Supreme Court to get an answer on this.
2: Also, Jack Smith cited this other case uh, from the Watergate error about Nixon. How does that fit in?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. They're citing a, a similar situation from the Watergate investigation where the Supreme Court was asked to weigh in on some specific issues and there, The Supreme Court scheduled oral arguments for those questions about whether Nixon had to turn over tapes from the investigation and whether he was protected by executive privilege. They scheduled oral arguments a few weeks out, and then just 16 days later, they had a decision. So that case could move ahead as scheduled. Now, there are other examples of the Supreme Court allowing issues to skip that middle step the court of appeals but this one this is really the most on point because of course this is a question that they would argue is of national importance and of course we're dealing with in one case a current and now a former president
2: would a ruling from the supreme court only apply to the federal election subversion case or would it also impact the rest of the former president's other criminal proceedings
3: so the one case that could really be impacted here is of course the georgia election subversion case. Now, that is a state prosecution. The question before the Supreme Court is about federal prosecution, but Anderson, look, if Trump wins at the Supreme Court here, I mean, that pretty much spells doom for Fonnie Willis's Georgia-based case. If Trump loses on these questions at the Supreme Court, I don't think that's a very good sign for any attempt uh, to launch similar appeals in Georgia, but it doesn't mean he won't do it. Well, because at the heart of his strategy isn't necessarily uh, the merits of these constitutional questions. Right now it's about delay. Their goal is to delay this case until after the election. So even attempting something like this in Georgia, even if he's lost at the Supreme Court, could be advantageous if it allows him to delay just a little bit longer.
2: All right, Paul Reed, thanks so much. With me here, CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Also joining us, in an legal legal analyst and former of Manhattan Chief Assistant District Attorney Karen Friedman mm-hmm. Um What do you think? Will they take this up, do you think?
4: I do think they will, Anderson. So this is what we call direct review, meaning Jack Smith wants to skip that middle step, Court of Appeals, and go right up to the Supreme Court. Because it's going to go to the Supreme Court no matter what. Right. They know they're taking this some way or other. So why have the middleman? Why take the many months that it would take for the Court of Appeals to weigh? And we know it's headed for the Supreme Court. And also, if you look back at recent history, so this— tactic of direct review was almost never done for a long time. However, the current Supreme Court has done it, and I have to credit Steve Laddick, our Supreme Court expert, 19 times since 2019. So it's something they've done in cases we've heard of. For example, Joe Biden's student loan program, they granted this expedited mm. relief. And many others we have not heard of. This case is more important than any of those, and this case has more time pressure than any of those. So I do think they will take it on this direct review.
2: And Karen, if the court does agree to hear the case, what does the timeline look like and when would you expect a ruling?
5: Well, hopefully it'll be in time so that we can still have the trial March 4th in front of Judge Chutkin, because if it doesn't go March 4th, don't forget, you've then got the Alvin Bragg Manhattan DA case slated to start a couple weeks after that, March 24th. And then that will bump into the election. And at that point, it's not going to be able to go forward at trial in the middle of a presidential election. And frankly, if Donald Trump wins the election, when he becomes president if he becomes president he could dismiss this case because the doj will be in his control and pardon himself so this case going soon and going in march is critical for this case going at all. And it's important that the American people, when they go into the election in November, has the results one way or another, or at least gets to hear the evidence of this case. Donald Trump files a lot of frivolous motions. This is not one of them. This is a very important motion. It actually has some merit and it has to be decided by the Supreme Court. It's never been decided before.
2: And uh, Elieman, how long do you think the court could take both to hear the case and also to decide?
4: Yeah, so they have to be wary of course of that critical march 4th date i mean they have to get it done enough time in advance but i think if we play this out they've given uh, doj until next or, excuse me they've given trump's team until next week to respond and then i think they'll decide by the new year whether they're taking it or not i think they'll give each side two weeks or so and i think we'll have a ruling if they take it by early to mid-february if i had to ballpark it and
2: karen what happens to this case and all the other cases that the supreme court rules that trump is protected by immunity
5: I mean, it just depends, right? Does he have absolute immunity or does he only have immunity for things that were within his job description or within the outer perimeter of his job? So it really depends on how they rule and how they slice and dice this. But it wouldn't make any sense because there is the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, that actually talks about when a If a defendant is if a president is impeached and convicted, it only applies to what will happen if they'll be removed from office. It says, nevertheless, it can then you can do go to trial or charge him otherwise. And that's what Judge Chutkin found was the Constitution specifically provides for a criminal prosecution of a president who commits a crime, even though it's not explicit. Trump is actually using that same clause to to say and argue in his his favor that uh, it means that he can't be prosecuted because there's an impeachment process and therefore it's double jeopardy. So they're each using the same clause and interpreting it differently. And it's important for the Supreme Court to weigh in and determine which one will you know, will dictate exactly what happens here.
2: There was also, Ellie, this separate filing, uh, Jack Smith indicating a plan to call this expert witness who, and I'm, I want to read this, who is quote, extracted and processed data from the White House cell phones used by the defendant and one other individual, determined the usage of these phones throughout the post-election period, including on and around January 6th, and, uh, number four, specifically identified the periods of time during which the defendant's phone was unlocked and the Twitter application was open on January 6th. So basically, it's, they don't, necessarily have access to data on the phone if he, he was... There. I mean, he's not somebody who sends a lot of messages, supposedly.
4: Right.
2: What would they find from the phone, and why are they doing this?
4: This is so important, because cell phones have now become evidentiary bonanzas. When I started as a prosecutor 20 years ago, not everyone had cell phones, and you couldn't do that much with them. Now they can tell you virtually everything about what a person's doing, who they're communicating with. If we look at what we know here from the reporting... This data will show prosecutors where Donald Trump was, because your cell phone is always what we call pinging, meaning it's looking for the nearest cell tower. Mm. You can tell where a person, you can geolocate that person with some precision. Even though Donald Trump famously doesn't email or text, he used DMs reportedly on Twitter. You can see that. You can see drafts. You can see what other apps he was using. You can see photo images. So this is now standard that prosecutors do. And they're allowed to look at this data? Yes, they're allowed to look at this data. They're allowed to either with consent or with a search warrant. I'm sure the prosecutors here have gotten the proper process for this. And then you send it to the FBI lab and they do what's called dump the phone. They just do a forensic dig on it. And you can come up with remarkably specific would disability. he have had
2: to give up his password?
4: Yeah, so he wouldn't have a choice if they either either he would have consented to that or if they got a search warrant, he wouldn't have a choice and he would have to give it up. And in order to get in this way, he would have had to have either given up his password or right. unlocked it for them.
2: Ellie thanks so much. Catherine Friedman, Magnifilo as well. Thanks. More uh, breaking news tonight involving the former president and the law, specifically the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case and his interactions with a potential trial witness. seen as Caitlin Politz joins us now with the exclusive. What have you learned?
6: Well, Anderson, this is a story about a series of communications. Uh, there's a close-knit circle of people who worked for, at Mar-a-Lago or still work at Mar-a-Lago under Donald Trump. Uh, and in the crucial period, there was the FBI search last August. And then an employee, a longtime employee who was quite close to many people at Mar-a-Lago, uh, leaves. Mar-a-Lago, having been a witness to many of the things that later appeared in the indictment of Donald Trump, Carlos de Oliveira, and Walt Nada, his two two people who worked for him. This person, this former employee, is becoming a witness. And before Donald Trump and these two other men are charged, there's just uh, enough things um, that raised his attention uh, to make it seem a little bit Different because the amount of of communication he was getting from not just Carlos de Oliveira and Walt Nada, but Trump himself was unusual for him. So these are his friends or people that he's working with regularly. But the things that I have learned through multiple sources as far as well as some materials that I've gotten uh, to been able to to have a bit of a insight into is that this former employee at Mar-a-Lago, he was friends with Carlos de Oliveira, who uh, later became charge in this case. And Carlos had said things to him about, um, hey, you should come to a golf tournament after he leaves working at the club, the Trump would, would like to see you. I think Trump would really like to see you. He also talks to Carlos uh, de Oliveira, and Carlos says something about, perhaps you want to come back to your job. You, you could come back to your job at Mar-a-Lago if you wanted to. Uh, there's also some discussions between the two about the attorneys. Do they want to use attorneys that are within the Trump circles? As Carlos de Oliveira did, this former employee chose to use an attorney outside of the Trump circles. There's also an instance where he interacts with Walt Nada, who later is charged, someone he has a less close relationship to, uh, and while Nada did tell him, uh, you could come back to work uh, at Mar-a-Lago if you wanted, that Watanada uh, was also showing up uh, at a gym with this man, as well as Carlos de Oliveira, which was unusual. And then finally, Anderson, The 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 one of the things that was so unusual here is as this former employee left his job a couple months after that FBI search, before he becomes a crucial witness to investigators, Donald Trump gets his cell phone number, hadn't called him in quite some time, rarely called an employee like this, um, and calls him and asks, him why are you leaving why are you leaving working for me Uh, very possibly at that time knowing that this man could be a witness against him in this investigation now all of this may just be how people are exchanging um, conversations how people have conversations how their friends have conversations what Trump is doing when people are leaving but it all is happening at such an interesting time that the special counsel's office did pick up on this pattern of interaction. They did look into it at one point in time. They were told about several of these instances.
2: So they knew about this, uh, and this was previously known to to Jack Smith.
6: This was previously known to Jack Smith. Through the reporting that I did for this story, um, it did become apparent that the special counsel's office did several interviews with this former employee, uh, and that former employee did give them This information and it clearly was something that they were keeping tabs on, not just before the indictment of Donald Trump and others, but it is something that the prosecutors very likely would be looking for now at a time Mm. where um, everything that Donald Trump and these two other men are doing after their criminal indictment, now that they are defendants awaiting trial, there are many restrictions placed around them. It is the sort of thing that they can't do now.
2: Yeah. Caitlin Pullins, thanks. It's fascinating. Coming up next, more breaking news What the Texas Supreme Court just decided about a pregnant woman's appeal for an emergency abortion only hours after she left the state to get one. Also, Rudy Giuliani in court with jurors set to decide how much he's going to have to pay for the falsehoods he spread about two 2020 Georgia election workers, that and what he said after court when we continue.
0: All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle-up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing, This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.
2: More breaking news. Shortly before airtime, the Texas Supreme Court overturned a lower court and ruled that Kate Cox cannot get an emergency abortion. It came just hours after she left the state. Her effort to end a pregnancy with a fetus with an almost always fatal genetic defect and the state's effort to block it have already drawn national attention. For more in this latest chapter, CNN's Ed Lavender joins us now from Dallas. So what, what do we know about her efforts to get an abortion outside of Texas?
7: Well, remember, everything kind of came to a screeching halt on Friday after Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, appealed the lower court's ruling of this temporary injunction that granted Kate Cox the legal right to get an abortion. And that case was taken to the Supreme Court, and because uh, Kate Cox was waiting in ling- legal limbo for much of the weekend, as her attorneys described, it is as a hellish weekend. Uh, she remained laid up in bed most of the weekend, um, and it was after that that she decided today uh, to leave the state, to go elsewhere to get uh, the abortion. And then, as you mentioned, just hours later after that announcement was made, the Texas Supreme Court issued that ruling and essentially it was siding with ken paxton here in texas so at the at the bottom line anderson is if, if uh, kate cox wanted this abortion she had no other choice but to leave the state
2: I'd love and dare. thanks very much now the man once known as america's mayor rudy giuliani today said he does not regret what he said about two 2020 georgia election workers quoting him now everything i said about them is true In actual fact a federal judge has already ruled that what he said was false and defamatory That determination came in part one of the case. Giuliani said what he said at the end of the first day of part two, the part in which a jury will decide how much he'll pay in damages for those very same falsehoods. Details now from CNN's Jessica Schneider. It's disgraceful
8: what happened.
9: Rudy Giuliani spent the days after the 2020 election traveling state to state, falsely insisting the results were rigged.
8: I don't have to be a genius to figure out that those votes
2: are not legitimate votes.
9: In Georgia, he focused his fire on two unsuspecting election workers in Fulton County. It's a tape earlier in the day
2: of Ruby Freeman and Shea Freeman-Morris and one other gentleman. They should have been, uh, should have been questioned already. Uh, their places of work, their homes should have been searched for evidence of ballots, for LS- evidence of USB ports, for evidence of voter
9: fraud. Shay Moss later told the January 6th committee her life changed forever the day Giuliani you publicly spread conspiracy theories about the her at a state senate hearing. She and her mother soon received death threats, angry election deniers showed up at their homes, and Ruby Freeman was forced into hiding.
10: I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation I've lost my sense of security, all because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay, to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. I second guess everything that I do. it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way. All because of lies.
9: Giuliani claimed Moss and Freeman plotted to kick ballot watchers out of State Farm Arena, the spot in Fulton County hosting the ballot counting. He also pushed the false narrative that they had brought in suitcases filled with fake ballots for Biden and then scanned them into the system multiple times. And Giuliani described surveillance video from that day he claimed showed Ruby and her daughter exchanging USB memory sticks containing a fraudulent vote count.
2: When you look at what you saw on the video, which to me was a smoking gun, powerful smoking gun. Quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. You don't put legitimate votes under a table. No. (laughs) Wait until you throw the opposition out and in the middle of the night count
8: them. We would have to be fools to think that. None of that was true, was it?
9: None of it. Congressman Adam Schiff on the January 6th committee asked Shea if Giuliani accurately described what her mom was passing under the table. Uh,
8: What was your mom actually handing you on that video?
0: A ginger mint.
2: Ginger mint. Jessica Schneider joins us now. To be clear, Rudy Giuliani has already been found liable of defaming Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. What's the the possible penalty?
9: Yeah, so a jury in this case is going to determine just how much he actually must pay. So he already owes them $230,000. That's for failing to respond to parts of their lawsuit. On top of that, Anderson, this mother and daughter, they're asking the jury to award them between $15 and $43 million. They say that's for the reputational harm they've suffered from Giuliani's comments. And on top of that, they're seeking additional money for their claim of emotional distress. And you, you said earlier, even tonight, even though he's already been found liable for defamation, Giuliani is still insisting that he spoke the truth. He was outside the courthouse tonight claiming once again that these women were engaged in changing votes, even though we know that is false. Anderson? I
2: mean, formerly America's mayor, uh, yeah. continuing to defame these people. Jessica Schneider, thank you. Coming up, Israel said today it is dismantling Hamas. We'll take a look at the fight on the ground and talk with an emergency coordinator for the group Doctors Without Borders, who's inside a key hospital serving central Gaza, where fighting is intensified loud explosions in northern gaza today as israel's defense minister said that hamas's last strongholds there are surrounded he repeated a claim from last week that hamas is near a breaking point he didn't cite specific evidence to confirm these claims but to that point the idf released these photos today claiming the men you see here are members of hamas and islamic jihad who surrendered our Alex Marquardt has more now on the fighting as well as growing humanitarian concerns. and want to warn you, some of the images you'll see are graphic.
8: Israel says after two months of fighting, it is still battling Hamas in two different strongholds in northern Gaza, where militants have held out. But Israel claims they are now on the verge of being dismantled. One area is the Jabalia refugee camp, where residents said dozens of civilians were killed over the weekend. Since the fragile week-long pause in the fighting ended, Israel has pounded the Gaza Strip and focused on the south in Khan Yunis, the second largest city there, where Israel believes senior Hamas leaders may be hiding. As Israel expands its operations, the number of civilians killed and wounded grows. The entire house fell on my head and I was pulled from underneath the rubble, this woman said. We would have been better off dead with my children, rather than living in this grim reality. An urgent appeal was issued by the IDF this weekend for even more civilians to evacuate parts of Han but it's unclear how many would have heard the orders. And it isn't a guarantee of safety, or shelter, medicine, food, and water, which are all in short supply. We were displaced from the north to the south for safety, but there is no safety in the south, this woman said. <laughs> it has led to deteriorating, chaotic scenes. United Nations Secretary General warning that public order will completely break down soon. The situation is very challenging, but I think that the state of Israel does uh,
10: much beyond our obligations by the international humanitarian
8: law. You call the situation in southern Gaza challenging. Last month, you denied that there was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Do you acknowledge now that there really is a dire humanitarian crisis? What I'm saying is, is like I've said, the situation is very, very challenging. But it's not a crisis in your opinion? As I see it, it's a challenge. It's a huge challenge.
2: Alex Markard joins us now from Tel Aviv in Israel. Israel has now confirmed another border crossing will open tomorrow not to get humanitarian aid into Gaza. What's it for?
8: Yeah, Anderson, Israel has been very strict about inspecting all of the aid going into Gaza. Up until now, there's only been one inspection point down at a place called Nitsana between Israel and Egypt. And now with Kerem Shalom uh, opening, there will be a second inspection point. So effectively, effectively what that does is double the number of trucks that will be allowed into Gaza. So you're going to have trucks coming from Egypt to so those two Israeli inspection points and then going back to the Rafah crossing to go into Gaza. But still, Anderson, that, that may not be enough. Rafah is not built to deal with a large number of trucks. Then you have this enormous number of people who have fled to the southern part of the Ga- of Gaza and very, very fierce fighting. So even with more trucks, it, the, the concept, the question of distribution is still very, very complicated. Anderson.
2: Alex Marquardt, thank you very much. I wanted to show you this video of a dramatic rescue in central Gaza. Husband and wife trapped under rubble. You can see medical staff and others lifting them out. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society, which shared this video, says that the couple's 22 year old son was killed in the bombing. We've not been able to independently verify that claim. After the rescue, the couple was transported to the Al-Aqsa hospital, which is one of the only lifelines for civilians in the central part of Gaza, where fighting has intensified since the end of the truce. It's also where my next guest works. Marie R. Perot-Revial is an emergency coordinator for Doctors Without Borders. I spoke to her before airtime. Connection from inside Gaza was rough, but we believe it's important to hear what life at the hospital is like right now. Marie, what's the scene like right now at the, the hospital?
11: It's chaotic, but chaotic just doesn't quite describe it anymore. It's been, a, honestly, today's been a, a very brutal day for us, um, for us as healthcare workers, uh, because the, uh, the hospital has received a, a very high uh, number of patients through the ER today.
2: I have read some of the things that, that you have seen, that your team have seen and heard, and I wonder if you could just talk about that. I mean, children, Five-year-old children talking about killing themselves because they can't stand what they're going through.
11: The, the first day that we arrived uh, here in in Alexa Hospital, forty percent of the of the children we provided wound care for uh, were under the age of fifteen. Yeah, the, the first time we heard, uh, such a such a young uh, child telling us that they, they just didn't want to leave anymore, um, was in a health center where we were providing uh, care in Khan Yunis and um, for. More than ten days now, we had to suspend our operations in that very health center, um, because it was ordered to evacuate.
2: In terms of your actual supplies, are you able to replenish supplies? Do you have the supplies? Do you have your own supplies?
11: No, it's it's extremely difficult. Um, supplies now are used as a as a bargaining chip. We we cynically count the number of trucks that are going through rafa uh, border every day but whatever the number of trucks that might go through rafa every day it just it will never match um the situation now it will never match the the number of people uh, which are injured every day it will never match the complete um even match the complete lack of access to healthcare, general, primary, secondary, um, just nothing. Nothing is functioning anymore. So it's extremely difficult to get supplies, but it's also extremely difficult to operate at all.
2: How long are you going to be able to operate there for if, if these conditions continue?
11: It's it's very difficult to to say. We just gonna we we go on by the day. We try and plan the next day. It's it's the supplies. It's also for how long will we have staff here? For how long will the hospital um, be safe? It's also extremely difficult to say. We know now that there's absolutely no safe space in in Gaza. So it's it's very, very difficult to say.
2: And are you, I'm not sure if you can talk about this. I'm not sure if you're concerned about safety. Do you see Hamas or other groups firing rockets from nearby your areas continuing into Israel? Because rockets keep being fired. Is that something you people see there?
11: Well, we're we're pretty much uh, locked in the hospital, so it's 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 also difficult for for me personally to to comment on on any of this. But we do see an incredible amount of suffering um, from the hospital. Um, we do see that people don't feel safe anywhere um, uh, within Gaza at the moment.
2: I, I do need to say I I have spoken to an MSF worker who worked in Gaza in a number of locations and did say, they wouldn't say so publicly, but did say that rockets were being fired very close to the location where they were staying, outgoing rockets into to Israel.
11: I mean, we hear active fighting's going going all over. Huh? Um, so I, I can't say things, yeah, I, I, I can't say, um, things that I'm not witnessing from, from within the hospital. Um, but yeah, we do, we do hear active fightings from going on from yeah, all over at the moment now.
2: Is, I, I know, I mean, MSF has been very critical of what they say is indiscriminate shelling by, by Israel. Are you able to be critical of Hamas if you saw things from Hamas as well?
11: I think we would be able to be critical of, of any, and we are able to be critical of any civilian suffering.
2: I'm not sure where else you've served, but I mean, MSF has, I mean, I've profiled MSF workers around the world in Rwanda during the genocide in places, horrific conditions. How does this compare to other places maybe you have been or your colleagues have been?
11: It's, um. For me, it's 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 not possible to to, to compare human suffering and human yeah yeah to just suffering all, all over. But the I would say how it compares, it's more our capacity or incap or rather our incapacity to operate here that is quite striking.
2: Mm-hmm. Marie Or, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Please be careful. Thank you. Just ahead, 117 hostages are believed to still be alive inside Gaza, according to Israeli estimates. One of them, Ofer Calderon, his cousin confronted the Israeli defense minister that we mentioned earlier in front of the minister's house. She joins me uh, next to talk about her cousin, the hostages, and that confrontation. The Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galant, who said Hamas is near a breaking point, was confronted by family members of two hostages on Friday. It was an intense exchange that occurred outside his home and was captured on video.
9: If it
6: doesn't happen tomorrow, they will actually die. Your whole idea of pumping water into the tunnels, you'll kill them.
7: I am explaining something else. Hamas is willing to speak to us only when we're applying force.
3: Do you know what they eat? Rice and a glass of seawater, how long can they live on that without sun and light?
7: We will make all efforts.
3: As quickly as possible, so they
6: don't return inside coffins but come back alive.
2: The second woman you saw there shaking the hand of the defense minister and who pleaded that the hostages are returned as quickly as possible is a woman named Ifat Calderon. Her cousin with whom she's close, Ofer Calderon, is still believed to be held in Gaza. Two of his kids, who we've reported on in the past, a 12-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl, were released two weeks ago during the truce. Two more members of the family, an 80-year-old woman and her 13-year-old special needs granddaughter, initially were believed kidnapped, but they were murdered. Their remains were identified more than a week after the October 7th attack. Just before air, I spoke to Ifat Calderon about that confrontation in front of the defense minister's house. Ifat, we just heard a little bit of your confrontation with Israel's defense minister, Gallant, on Friday night. What was his response? What did you make of his response?
10: They don't want to stop the war right now. They don't want to go back to negotiate with Hamas. And they think that uh, they need to go into Gaza and continue, and I don't agree with it.
2: Do, do you think there is an inherent contradiction between the idea of neutralizing Hamas and also rescuing hostages? Can you do both? Because it seems like you're saying there should be a pause or a ceasefire, a stop to the fighting, and the priority number one is the hostages. I th- yes.
10: Uh, I think that the first priority, yeah, is uh, to save them, to bring them back home. There's the, the citizen that they were taken from their beds in the morning of the 7th of October. They haven't done anything. They need to, to come. The, the, the government needs to, to, to bring them back home. It's, it's, it's the first priority, of course.
2: What do you think it would take to bring all sides back to the table to negotiate?
10: Uh, the other uh, responsible uh, person is President Biden. The needs to to make it happen to bring the both sides to the to negotiate again because i don't think that they're going to do it by by themselves like it's not going to happen no way
2: there's been some reporting that the one option the IDF has considered is pumping seawater into into the tunnels um obviously there's a lot of concern if hostages were in those tunnels. What did he, what did Gallant say to that when you pressed him on it?
10: Actually, he didn't say something about that because I, I told him if you're gonna do it, they're gonna—they're not gonna survive, they're gonna die. I told him they're gonna be dead. So this is something that you want and he didn't ask.
2: Erez and, and Sahar were taken hostage along with their father. Um, how they were released? Errors in Sahara were released two weeks ago. H- how are they doing?
10: They're not good. They are alive. They came back. We're really happy. But we're not going to. The, the, the picture is not until uh, the father of will come back. Uh, Offer is is really special. Dad is he's, is he's really loved one. He is taking care of them. He's like. Um, they're going for trips to for trips together, they're doing lots of things together and it's really part of their life. It, 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 for me and for them it's it's not an option that that he's not gonna come back home alive. And uh they're not good. They're not good at all. And um how can they? They were were fifty fifty two days in Gaza. How can how can uh, Children like 12 years old, and 16 years old. Everything they, they've seen, they've seen their father in the kibbutz uh, before they, they were taken to Gaza. They've seen uh, the, the um, terrorist hitting the uh, offer. He's been hit also in his leg. He's injured right now. So nobody knows what is the situation right now. Just, you know, we heard some stuff from people that came back from there and uh, they eat, like, a piece of bread and a glass of uh, seawater a day, something like that. How can you survive? Uh, all the situation is very scary. Every day that uh, crossing by is, like, I think they, they, they're asking, themselves, are we going to survive? Because uh, they don't know if, you know, they can the bomb can hit them, um, the, yeah. you know, the, the, they can be killed from our side, from uh, the Israeli side. It's, it's really scary.
2: Well, Ifat, I appreciate talking to you, and I'm sorry it's still under these circumstances, and I, I hope you get good news soon.
10: Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Coming up, the mysterious disappearance of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and what Russian officials are claiming about it, I'll talk with his daughter next. Lawyers for jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny say he's been missing for six days and didn't show up for a court hearing today via video link. Prison officials claim there was an electricity issue. Navalny's legal team say they've made several attempts to reach him with no success and they're worried about his health. In a moment, I'll speak with his daughter. In August, the 47-year-old critic of Russia's president Vladimir Putin was found guilty of creating an extremist community and other crimes and sentenced to 19 years in prison. He was already serving nearly 12 years on fraud and other charges that he denies. Joining me now is his daughter, Dasha Navalnya. Uh, Navalny. Dasha, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so sorry we're talking under these circumstances. Have you, do you buy this idea that there were electrical issues?
12: Of course not. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's very important that we keep this story on air. And I. Thank you for having me. I don't buy for one second that there have been any technical problems in the prison. There have been many instances where they have transferred him or just didn't want him to come out because whenever my dad has a court hearing, he uses that uh, to speak up against the war or tell people to question the regime. And uh, Putin has actually just announced that he is going to be running for re-election in the coming presidential elections. And they don't want my father to speak up against that.
2: Do you know anything about his current whereabouts or, or even when was the last time you knew about his whereabouts?
12: The concerning thing is that we have no idea where where he is or what's happening or if he's even being transferred anywhere. Um, the the most recent updates that you got from his attorneys and from his spokesperson, Kira Yarmish are the most recent updates that I got personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the. What happened? The, his most uh, the most up to date news on his health is that two weeks ago he fainted in his cell because they've been practically starving him. He's very malnourished. Uh, he's not getting any medical support that he needs, or he's been uh, asking to see a dentist, and they're not providing anything. And he's being stripped of his basic human rights um, as he's being held in prison unlawfully. Uh, he fainted in his cell two weeks ago, and they put him on an IV. But you know, the IV can be anything. The IV can be just full of water, filled with vitamin B12, um, and it can it doesn't necessarily support his health. So I'm I'm very concerned for him. The last time the attorneys have been able to speak to him was six days ago, and since then he's been MIA. We have no idea where he is and the technical problems are just a front.
2: How much regular contact do his attorneys or even you have with him?
12: It's, um, you know, when it comes to my father, there's no regular, uh, there's no regulations. The prison wards and the prison guards don't really follow any rules. Uh, we just take what we can get from them. I write him letters on occasion, and sometimes the the letters go through censorship, of course. Sometimes it takes two weeks for him to respond. Sometimes it takes for him a month to respond. Sometimes I know, I notice that he doesn't respond to me about my certain concerns about my classes here in college, and I understand that he didn't get a certain letter that I wrote to him because it didn't go through censorship. Um, the last time I was in communication with him was a month ago personally, and the last time he was able to talk to his attorneys was a week ago. Um, he, yes
2: H- how do you how do you deal with this? I mean, as a daughter?
12: <laughs> it's difficult. It's certainly something that I've had to work on dealing with over the past couple of years but i know that my father is doing an incredible thing for not just to have for me personally his daughter his child my brother his son to have a better country and a better life but also for all citizens of russia and for all people around the world who are striving to have a better democracy he's doing an incredibly noble thing and i'm very proud to be his daughter
2: and have you had any contact with U.S. authorities on, on your dad's behalf?
10: No. No. Yeah.
2: If you could get a message to your father right now, what, what would you tell him? I mean, I assume he doesn't have access to any outside communication, does he? TVs. Or uh, no, internet. he doesn't
12: have. Uh, no, <laughs> there is no such thing as uh, TVs in prison. There is. There are TVs in the Russian prisons, but they usually uh, just show Russian propaganda twenty-four-seven uh which is i i know how much he hates watching that tv uh but they're trying to really build the russian uh so sort of uh a love for country within the prisoners in the system but if i were to get a message out to him uh i don't know i just want i want the people not just him but i want others to know that I have hope, and uh, for others, pe- for other people to have hope, that we can change the regime if we work together, and to um, talk to your friends and family and uh, agitate them to be against Putin. He's running for re-election, and when you talk about it, there's three months before the elections. He's re- he- the ele- presidential elections are in March 2024. Yeah, and if you're in Russia, vote against him. And tell your friends and family to vote against them, too.
2: Dasha Navalny, I appreciate it. Thank you. Be right back. Thank you so much. That's it for us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be, too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible.
7: Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com callmecountry.